Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week we're reading Acts 17, 16-34, the story of Paul's visit to the Greek Cultural Center of Athens. We marvel at the way Paul engages with the people of Athens, appreciating their history and culture, while also standing firm in his own beliefs. He admires Greek religiosity, quotes Greek poetry, and engages Greek philosophy. Yet he does not hesitate when it comes time to express his own contrary beliefs in judgment and resurrection. We wonder why it often seems so difficult for us to do the same, whether by failing to recognize the value of other belief systems, or by faltering when it comes time to state the essential claims of our own. Paul makes it look so simple. We wonder if we can do the same. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am good. How are you? I am also good. <laughs> I am, that is I'm, always our answer. It's always our answer. I mean, like, what are we going to say? I'm, I'm good enough. You good enough? Yeah, it's We're good of, enough to read some text. We're fine. Yeah. I mean. This, uh, this week's kind of uh, this been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My husband is reading this book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Oh. This book. It's no, very but it stresses co-helic. me out because four thousand weeks is like that's your it, your life, right? Yeah, it, it's. Like I mean, my husband so. also yeah. has an app that like periodically reminds him he's going to die, so that he would read this book is not so surprising. Wait, what? Like it just like every once in a while, it just says like remember you are dust. Yeah. <laughs> like literally, that's that's the whole app. I mean, I don't remember the. I don't know the words that it yeah. says. Like but, you are going to die. Remi- you're going to die. Wow. Maybe I should give him a countdown. And approximately this many weeks. No, anyway, it's a very cohelity. Yeah. You know, cohelity kind of book. And now I'm doing the math on how much longer I've got it. (laughs) 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 That 4,000 weeks thing stressed me out. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. That wasn't the point, though. But but what he said the other day was I asked him sort of what he's taking from the book. And he said he's really sort of thinking about this idea that. That life is just, like, don't be distressed about problems that come up because really that's all life is. Like, there's a, you plan to do something and there's a problem and you deal with the problem. And then while you're doing that, there's another problem. You know, problem with like a small P, it doesn't have to be like some epic whatever. But, you know, that that we expect everything to go smoothly. It's not going to go smoothly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. No. Nope, yeah, no. I remember when I was in my twenties, and there was one day where I was I was like loading the dishwasher and then unloading the dishwasher, and I was like, I was like processing it as like the doing of the dishes, the folding of my laundry. Like this is the stuff that gets in the way of the living of my life. Yeah. And then one day, like in my mid twenties, I was like, oh, that actually that that is my life. Like that is what it you is. do. You. Unload and load the dishwasher. You fold your laundry. It gets dirty. You do it again. Like there. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Hmm. Amy, I feel like this Bible word might be off to an awkward start. 
<laughs> we started so with everyone, I'm good and we ended I up with you're... all we're doing with our lives is loading and unloading the dishwasher until we die I mean, in 4,000 weeks. Right, but but you have to find the good in that. It's true. It is true. Because it's not going away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like we have just introduced the book of Ecclesiastes, which, as you know, is one of my favorite books. And also, I think, kind of one of yours, too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. really. I love, I love that book. We are not in Ecclesiastes this time. We're in the book of Acts. We've been sort of following the missionary journey of Paul, who, as you remember from a couple weeks ago, was encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and became the great disciple of Jesus to the Gentile world, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Last week, we were in Acts 16, looking at what happened when Paul went to Philippi. This week, we're in Acts chapter 17, and we're looking at Paul's journey to Athens in Greece, which is kind of the, you know, the center of culture in the ancient world. We're reading Acts 17. The narrative lectionary has us in 16 to 31. The Bible Worm Collaborative wanted us to add three more verses at the end and just go to the end of the chapter. So we'll actually read 17, 16 to 34 today. When you think about the city of Athens in its ancient, I mean, we're modern, I guess, but, you know, I feel like Athens carries like a weight with it that not just every place carries. Can you describe like... What does the city of Athens invoke for you? For me, it really invokes this sort of like classical systems of thought. Yeah. Like Plato and Socrates and, you know, these sort of big philosophical thinkers who who have shaped Western thought really still to to yeah. today. Yeah. Like there, there's a whole there's a whole universe of of thought and engagement with ideas and meaning and what we ought to be doing and what are the principles by which the world actually works that, you know, may or may not invoke an idea of God in them. Yeah. But in some ways engage really similar questions. Yeah. What does Athens evoke for you? I, I No, I think that's really well said. You know, what the way that I was kind of framing it, which I think is quite similar, is that Athens was, even in the Roman period, kind of the intellectual and cultural Mm. center of the world. Mm. And, you know, Roman culture comes along and the political capital moves to the city of Rome, but the cultural capital still kind of is is in Athens. That Roman culture, as you well know, sort of took over and adapted Greek culture, but they are largely indistinguishable to the point that people often talk about Greco-Roman culture. Yeah. And Athens is the center of that, not the political center any longer, but still the cultural center and the intellectual center. And so Paul is really, I mean, he's in the heart of the, he's at the very center of the intellectual and cultural world of the ancient Roman Empire. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Do you think you went there on purpose? I think so. Yeah. He didn't just stumble into Athens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One does not simply walk into Athens. One does not simply walk. Okay, so let's see what happens when Paul gets to Athens. We're picking up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. Mm-hmm. While Paul waited for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was deeply distressed to find that the city was flooded with idols. 
he began to interact with the Jews and Gentile God worshippers in the synagogue. He also addressed whoever happened to be in the marketplace each day. Certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him in discussion too. Some said, what an amateur, what's he trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. They said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him into custody and brought him to the council on Mars Hill. What is this new teaching? Can we learn what you were talking about? You've told us some strange things and we want to know what they mean. They said this because all Athenians, as well as the foreigners who live in Athens, used to spend their time doing nothing but talking about or listening to the newest thing. I'm so curious what, I didn't actually go back and check the NRSV. Were there things about the CEB translation that stood out as it's curious? really different. Yeah. Like the tone of the CEB translation is kind of funny to me. And I'm just wondering if that's actually the way it reads in the NRSV too. I mean, one thing that, uh, that the sort of, I don't know, the way that that last part of the story is painted seems a little different in the NRSV. It doesn't say they took him into custody. It says they took him and they brought him to this place mm. and they asked him, yeah. you know, the same question. And then it says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new, which sounds yeah. a little bit less... Uh, yours sounded and like I had a question when I read it. Like, is it something new? Like, we're we're not afraid of new ideas and we're interested yeah. in in thinking new thoughts. That sounds very yeah. positive. Or is it like we're we're just kind of trendy and we want to you know what's the latest thing and we're gonna yeah. pay some superficial level of attention to it. In my translation, I feel like it's not totally clear, and in your yeah. translation, it sounds more like the latter. Yeah. Like, it's a little bit pejorative about they're just wasting yeah. their time. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree that the CEB reads, reads that way. I actually think that's a fairly fair critique of, you know, from the perspective of the ancient world. You know, one of the things that we'll see, or we do see, is that oftentimes very old things were the most valued, right? Yes. And so you wanted to, you didn't want to say, like, here's my new religion. You wanted, and we'll see Paul doing that, saying, this thing that you think is new is actually very, very, very old. That's a little different than, like in our culture, I feel like being after the newest thing is kind of like what you're supposed to do. Like you're, you're hip and trendy. You should be, you know. It is, although I think it's, it's so trendy that at least for me, it's like, I feel like there's this sort of uh, pushback against that after a certain point, like innovation yeah. for the sake of innovation. is also not so great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but but how do we strike a place where we are curious? We walk yeah. through the world with curiosity and yeah. and wonder about new things and want to think new thoughts and entertain new ideas without sort of being like, well, it's because you have the attention span of a flea and if you have to think yeah. of something <laughs> for more than a week, yeah. then it's not interesting anymore. I do think that's one of the interesting dynamics of this text in general is this kind of interplay between the old and the new and curiosity, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. also like some things we want to be curious about and open to and some things we want to be curious about, but sort of reject them. There's a lot of that going on in different ways in this, in this text that we're reading. So let's, let's keep some awareness of that as we go. Yeah. The first thing we get here is that Paul was distressed to find the city flooded with idols, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, like that is, this is the Christian author of the book of Acts kind of making some judgments here, but what do you read? Like, 
deeply distressed to find the city flooded with idols. Like, how do you imagine what Paul was thinking? Uh, the first thought that came into my head, it doesn't exactly answer your question, but maybe it'll come to, come to the answer to your question in a roundabout way. Whenever there are these sort of accusations against idolaters or idolatry in the biblical text, I wonder, I think I, I encountered somewhere along the way the idea that when outsiders see any kind of representation, physical representation of a deity and someone treating that physical representation with honor, they think that the worshiper thinks the God is in the thing. Like the thing itself yeah. is God. And, you know, to to be frank, this is when, when I was in Greece, there is a lot of, they would not call it idols, but a lot of iconography yeah. of Christ that is sure. revered, you know, with very sort of embodied practices. And I think a totally outside person seeing it could look at that too and say, they think that thing is God, which they don't. Right. So I don't know. This that's so I wonder I wonder this text makes me wonder what what the Greek people actually thought yeah. those idols were or were not. Like did they actually think they were little gods or just that they were representations? Yeah, I mean this is an interesting question and you know all it, this happens all throughout the biblical text like all the way back yes. in the Hebrew prophets. Yes. And you know ancient people did I mean, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Like, I think this is fairly, fairly clearly true. They didn't think the actual statue was actually a god, right? They thought that the statues were places where God was most present. Mm -hmm. And so, like, maybe it's the sort of manifestation of the earthly manifestation of the presence of a god who, like, exists above and beyond and outside. Mm -hmm. But this, you know, this polemic of, like, oh, they're worshiping stones or they're worshiping wood. Like, this is a... This is a nice way to attack someone else's beliefs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, it happens here. It happens in Hebrew scriptures. It happens all throughout the Bible. So it says, I mean, I don't know if it's an intentional misrepresentation, but it's a misrepresentation of what mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. probably were actually thinking. The other issue here with idolaters to me is simply that the book of Acts, and then I think Paul, although we'll have to watch it as we go, like he is processing work, like even if, you don't believe that the statue to Athena is actually Athena. You're still worshiping the goddess Athena yeah. through reverence of the statue. And Athena is not God, according to the so beliefs of both Judaism and Christianity. So maybe that's the problem, that they're worshiping false gods yeah. who are I think both of those are going to be problems. Yeah. Yeah. But this first statement is, it creates sort of a hostility, like right out of the gate, right? Yeah. For Paul, like just the fact that you have your native religions is a problem because he's only going to process that as idolatry. Yeah. I mean, which is fair enough. Like it's in the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other God before me. Like don't be an idolater. Like that's one of the foundational principles of both Judaism and Christianity. Creates a difficult situation <laughs> for entering into a culture. That doesn't believe in your God, though. You looked a little suspicious of me right there. I'm curious what was going on. No, I just was, I was just sort of trying to process quickly, like, yes, certainly it's in the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments don't apply to these people, right? Because they are neither right. Jewish nor Christian. Right. So in some ways, I just see it sort of as like Paul 
Paul's out of his element. Like when he was visiting synagogues, he wasn't always successful. Yes, yeah, yeah. But he kind of knew, he was familiar with what was going to happen in there. And now that he's out of synagogues, he's sort of like, my God, like (laughs) they're they're (laughs) all over the place. Like, you know, it's, it's a whole new, a whole new world with a different set of challenges. And some people maybe who have more openness or curiosity, but yeah, I feel like, I feel like it's when I, the Long Island girl went to school in Houston Yeah, (laughs) learned about hairspray. I was like, what is happening? No, it's not like hairspray. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He he has some culture shock. That's really helpful. And I, you know, I do think like even in the Hebrew prophets, you know, post-exile in particular, there is this idea that the Gentiles are going to realize that the God of Israel is God and come and worship. But there's not this exact, you're right, there's not this condemnation that we're seeing here of like, you shouldn't, like, the concern is internal to the Jewish community about who you are and are not worshiping. And there's a little bit of a sense of, Outsiders are going to figure it out one day, but we're not overly concerned with them in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. Paul has made a shift, or maybe Jesus has made a shift. Yeah. In which now this message that used to be internal to the Jewish community, the understanding of the early Christians is with the arrival, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, it is now a universal truth. Mm-hmm. And so not just a shift in context from you know, being around Jerusalem to being in Athens, but also a shift in sense of mission to now it's that everybody should be believing in the God of Israel as manifest in Jesus Christ, who now has a mission to the world. So he's trying to figure out his, his religion has changed. Yeah. Dramatically. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Yep. Now he goes as you were saying earlier, he goes to the synagogues and he talks to Jews and God worshipers or God fearers, people who have not converted to Judaism, but worship the God of Israel. And then also for the first time, I think we start to see, we, first we get whoever happened to be in the marketplace. And then we get specifically in verse 18, Epicurean and Stoic mm-hmm. philosophers. Yeah. So we went from sort of an internal conversation of a Jew among other Jews to like, now we're engaging in Athens Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, like he has hit the big time. Yeah, for sure. I and I love the line that he goes to the marketplace. Like there is, I don't know, maybe it's actually from a similar time period. I'm not sh- sure. But there was also Torah was also read in the marketplace, you know, with yeah. the idea being that you you go to where the people are. Yeah. And so I love I love seeing that in here. But yeah, it's yeah. A, I imagine it's a very different crowd. And then very different kind of conversation that you're having in synagogue versus in the marketplace with the local philosophers. Yeah. And, you know, the Greek there is actually in the Agora. And the Agora is not, you know, just simply a marketplace among marketplaces. But the Agora is like the place in Athens where all yeah. the stuff happened. Yeah. So you've got this is where philosophers are going around and debating things and where all the, you know, the court cases are being tried. And like, he is in the center of Athenian life right here. Mm, I think that's such an important point you just made, Bobby, because we think marketplace and I'm thinking like, you know, it's like the farmer's market. Like there's a lot of people there, right? (laughs) Like, it's like, there's a lot of people there. And so you go there because there's a lot of people there and you can encounter a lot of people, but it wasn't just that. It was also 
the the proverbial marketplace of ideas. You know, it was yes. where the big conversations happened. I, that's a really helpful like tweak to the picture in my head. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this, you know, this would have been where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle a few centuries earlier had been walking around with their students and proclaiming their philosophical systems and like we're doing something we're doing something for real here. Mm. Is there anything we should know about Epicureans and Stoics? So I will tell you what I know about them, which is limited. What I know about Epicureans is that this is a philosophical school that taught that there were gods, but the gods played no real role in human yeah. affairs. Like there were gods doing their thing, there were humans doing their thing. Not not super closely related. The Stoics, another philosophical school that taught that humans should use reason to live a virtuous life sort of in accordance with nature. So yeah. not thinking about, you know, sort of supernatural things or you know, the way that in the Hebrew Bible, sometimes God like explodes into nature and change, yeah. you know, changes natural forces in a way that will get our attention yeah. or change systems of power or do whatever it's going to do. Uh, the Stoics didn't, didn't see the world that way. That's right. And, you know, I, I was wondering why talking about Ecclesiastes was relevant to today, but it turns out mm-hmm. a lot of people think Ecclesiastes was influenced by Stoicism. And so if you've not read Stoic philosophy, but you have read Ecclesiastes, like there's some connections there, particularly mm-hmm. that last point you were making. You know, for Stoics, there is a God and that God is very much a part of things, but that God is not this sort of interactive, like sea parting God. It's just that God is sort of almost like fate that makes mm. things happen. And so this idea that we'll see in a little bit that we live our life in God is very comfortable in a Stoic framework. But, this, but it's not a personal, personalized God in, in the way that God is personal in both Judaism and Christianity. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting in this sort of, these two philosophical schools, which are dominant schools in this time period, and now Paul's engaging them, they have different kind of agendae Agenda. Mm-hmm. They have different kind of agendas when it comes to engaging with Paul and thinking about like, well, what is Paul saying relative to what we think? So it's it's kind of interesting. It's not simply like Greek and Paul. It's yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. No, I love that. And I, I mean, I just keep yeah. I said before, you know, it's some kind of culture shock for Paul, probably being outside the world of the synagogue and the diaspora. But it's like multiple culture shocks. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, right. and I love that this, that this text gives us a little bit of that nuance. I mean, I think it's always true. It's never that yeah. there's just one set of beliefs in a people that you're encountering, but when you encounter them for the first time, yeah. it's easy to, you know, generalize everybody. This is probably not the most important thing we will talk about today, but one of my favorite things is in verse 18, when the philosophers encounter him, they say, what an amateur, what's he trying to say? The Greek word there is spermologos, which means literally means like a seed picker. And it's a way of talking about like picking up information like a bird picks up seeds. It's like, I don't know, we might call it like a dilettante or something like that. Mm. Like somebody who gets little bits of things and then tries to make something out of them. But mm-hmm. or like this, the phrase seed picker reminds me of, you know, growing up in the South, we talk about or sometimes we are talked about is like hay seeds. Like, oh, what a hay seed, which is like somebody who doesn't have any idea what they're talking about. Like, I don't, there's something about that sort of way of referring to Paul as a, like as a seed picker. 
that I just find really kind of amusing. Like they're, they are not being kind to him in that, in that moment right there. I love that. I had not heard Hayseed before. Oh, yeah, really? in, the, in the NRSV, it's, he's called a babbler. Yeah. And I was thinking like a dabbler, like a, yeah. Yeah. Like someone who That's just exactly sort of it. picks little bits here and there. And it had me yeah. thinking about sort of where, what, in, in what areas of life are people accused of those things now? And they certainly are like just lifting, lifting a little tiny bit from one religious tradition or another and creating some kind of like mishmash of things. We still, we still tease people who do that. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I tease people all the time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Probably it's actually the other Perfect. way around. I am often teased for being a seed picker. So there seem to be two concerns that they express with Paul. One is that he's an amateur seed picker, and the other is that he's mm-hmm. proclaiming foreign gods. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So Paul is concerned about them because they are interested in foreign gods, but they're also concerned about him because he seems to represent a foreign god. So there's this sort of mutual suspicion, which I think is kind of important. There's a note in my study Bible, the Jewish annotated New Testament, that the the word that's used for resurrection, anastasis, yeah, the bystanders take to be the name of a deity. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing to me in that sort of observation is just that they're in this first encounter of ideas between the two of them, they really are just kind of misunderstanding each other all over the place. Like Paul probably doesn't quite understand what's happening with the idols. They don't even understand exactly what he's saying. Like they're, they're a little talking past each other. To their credit. And on that point, what they then do is say, we want to learn more about this. Yeah. So they take him in the CEB. It's called Mars Hill, sometimes called Aries Hill, sometimes called the Areopagus. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, stone outcrop near the Acropolis where Mm -hmm. people went to sort of talk about ideas. So they take him there and they said, tell us about your stuff. Like, do you read them as sincere here? Like, why do you think they take Paul to, to the Areopagus and say, can we learn what you're talking about? I mean, maybe I'm being naive, but I do read it as sincere. Yeah. You know, it, if, I don't know, I think one, one sort of fun thing about people who are interested in philosophy is they, they want new ideas to think about. That doesn't mean they're going to accept yeah. your idea, but like this is new, you're like feeding them, you know, and yeah. they can sort of work through your idea and see how it fits with their idea. Like it's, this is what they do. Yeah. So I read them as totally sincere. Like, yeah. we want to understand what what you're saying, and then we'll decide whether it's actually worth thinking about it or not. But yeah, I, I think it's pretty cool. And I like I think the NRSV translation is better. They took him to Mars Hill. Yeah, CEB. They put him in custody. Reminds me yeah, a little bit of like yeah. earlier passages where Paul yes. gets thrown into jail for things, and that's not what's happening here. Yeah, he's not on trial. Yeah, it's exactly right. They just want to hear him out. Yeah, I think that's right. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from Bible Worm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. 
We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bibleworms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoy the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bibleworm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast. If you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Okay, so well, let's see what Paul says when he gets his chance to speak. Picking up in verse 22. Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Mars Hill and said, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed something, since he is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God made the nations so they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God, we live, move, and exist. As some of your own poets said, We are his offspring. That verse 28 is often translated, in God we live and move and have our being, Mm -hmm. which I just think is such a lovely Mm -hmm. phrase. I I, I really like it a lot. Yeah. no, That was a deep comment. (laughs) No, it's really beautiful. The NRSV is pretty much that, except it says in him instead of in God. Yeah. We live and move and have our being. Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting to me about that is that Paul seems to be quoting the Greek poet Epimenides, who lived somewhere between the 7th and the 5th centuries BCE, so like five or 600 years earlier. So this beautiful thing that sounds very Christian and very Jewish, in God we live and move and have our being, he's actually using language that's familiar to people uh, who, would, who would be listening to him. He's connecting to their own, to their own sources of culture. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, to me, that's such an interesting move from Paul. Do you have thoughts about like, what, what do you see Paul doing there? And like, wh- why is he doing it? I think I, I love watching the progression of this text from the first section where I think there's just a lot of sort of talking past each other, misunderstanding, yeah. trying to, trying to grasp quickly what's going on, but kind of missing it into this paragraph where it seems like Paul's making a really explicit attempt to find common ground, yeah. start where they are. I mean, I love I love that he says, I, I see you have this piece of art, this object of worship that says to yeah. an unknown God. Yeah. You know, as an, as an educator, they always say, like, the first thing you have to do is identify the authentic need that the learner has. Yeah. Because if mm-hmm. there's no authentic need, they're not going to want to buy what you're trying to sell. Yeah. And so it's pretty rhetorically brilliant to say, like, I see that your God is unknown to you in some way, and let me yeah. 
fill in some of that and then to sort of fill it in with some new some things that are new or sort of extensions of Greek philosophy, but to go back to teachings that will be familiar to them. Yeah. I, I mean, I just think I just think it's brilliant. I think it's fantastic. I think that's so well said, Amy. And, you know, the first thing he says to them back in verse 22 is, I see that you are very religious in every way, mm-hmm. which I mean, I read that as being very sincere. Yeah. I mean, yes, I read it as being very sincere. Again, my my study Bible has a note that maybe it this phrase could connote superstitious belief or yeah. maybe it sort of points both ways. But I feel like especially the way that the text goes on, I'm inclined to read it as sincere. Yeah. I think that I, I, I agree with you or with your study Bible that it's open <laughs> to possible interpretations. But to me, you know, Athens was known in the ancient world, like the people of Athens were known to be pious people who were very invested in their own like forms of religious belief. Yeah. And, you know, I think it was important to them. And so for Paul to say, I see that you're very religious, in my mind, is a very respectful way of saying this thing that you think about yourself, like I'm walking around and it really is true. And this reputation that you have of being religious, like I am fully on board with that. Like, I, I want to say flattery, but that's not exactly what I mean. Like I, where, what you started is right. He's, he's connecting with them where they are. And he is saying, I see this about you and I value this about you. Mm-hmm. And instead of like, now I'm going to tell you about your pagan ways. Yeah. Uh, he is saying like, let's start by seeing what, what we can respect and value about each other. Yeah. So the unknown God thing, I see that you have been worshiping an unknown God. You were talking about how he takes that. So they've been accusing him of doing something new. Mm-hmm. And so I think what he's doing here, right, is he's saying it's not actually new. Mm-hmm. It's just like here you've, you're already worshiping this God. Mm-hmm. You just have not fully understood. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to do is fill in the background of this thing that you already mm-hmm. hold to be true. And so he's, I mean, he's taken this little opening of one statue in the city of statues that says an unknown God. And what he's about to do is say like that one unknown God, in fact, is the God of the universe, yeah. <laughs> the, the only God who matters. Yeah. And so in some way, he's, he's going to end up trying to supplant everything else. Supplant might be a, a wrong word, I don't know. But he does it by way of connecting with something that's already there. Mm-hmm. What? Like, how do you read? Like, I don't even quite know what my question is, but like he finds an opening, which I, which I think we both really admire. And then he's trying to like expand that opening as much as possible as possible. I mean, like, uh, I don't know if this is part of your question. Like, is it manipulative or is it rhetorically smart? And I mean, like, you know, it just kind of depends what day of the week it is or how you squint your eyes. I am inclined to take, to take Paul sort of at, at face value, I guess. And, and assume that he is sincere in, and not sort of mocking them and like seeing them as, human beings worthy of dignity. You know, like I, I don't I don't read him as looking down on the people that he's speaking to. Yeah. Once he sort of gets over his surprise that like, yeah, you're not in Kansas anymore. Like people have idols, people, you know, like yeah. <laughs> welcome to the big wide <laughs> yeah. world, Paul. It is it is is it a little chutzpah to say like I'm gonna explain to you something about this God you've been worshiping that you haven't known before? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. but I don't know. I don't I don't 
read it as a negative, as a negative thing. One of the things that I've learned from you along the way is, you know, this is in essence, this is an interfaith dialogue that Paul is having here. He is engaging with people who do not know, understand, or share his religious beliefs. And you talk about your teacher, John Levinson, Mm -hmm. who, as I recall you saying, his point was to have a true interfaith dialogue, you need to be respectful of other people's belief systems and own yours and not try to pretend like you don't believe what if everybody comes in just authentically saying, I respect you and I'm interested in you, but here's my belief system. That's the way interfaith dialogue is going to be productive. Is that close to what Levinson says? Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's at least how I, how it lives in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. That if you sort of like tiptoe around differences and try to try to make it out as though you have no differences and we're all just friends here and basically have the same belief, like that's not really interfaith dialogue. And if you think the other person's dumb, they'll be able to tell. Like, (laughs) yeah, you know, like, (laughs) yeah. As soon as you say there's no value in anything you believe, like now we're in a combative situation when we're not, we're never going to get anywhere. Right. So in that way, I like, I think Paul is making a brilliant interfaith move. And he has said, look, and you and I talk about this on the podcast. Like there, there is a fairly good distance you and I can go together often mm-hmm. before we can't go together anymore. And so like, we should go as far as we can together. And then we should say, now here is where the paths separate. And we got to figure out how to be in relationship across that difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I see Paul doing that here is saying, look, I respect you. I, I think your religion is interesting. Like you're obviously very pious people. Here's a God that you worship. And I interpret that God as, as being the same as this God that I worship. So here's a point of connection. And now I'm going to expand that. And here's maybe here's where we separate. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know, because he continues, Paul does, to make connections back. Like the idea that God created the world and everything in it, like that is perfectly fine within most Greek religious Right. I was going to say he's found systems. these ideas that are both Greek and, yeah. you know, Jewish, Jew- Jewish broadly speaking, you know, at this, yeah. at this point in history. Yeah, he's he has found the pieces of like real common ground and and he is going to build on shared common ground and then the people will take what they take from it, you know. Yeah. But but I think it's he's not saying throw out your system. I think that's exactly right. And I also think he's making some claims like he's he's creating a little bit of a distinction here in some of the things that he says. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, just by saying this one whom you worship as an unknown God is in fact the God. Like, mm-hmm. so you recognize this God, but you didn't quite get it. Like, th- so he's making a distinction there, mm-hmm. clearly. That this idea that God is not worshiped in temples and with human hands as though God needs something. Like, I think it depends. Like, I think some Greeks would say, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, you're, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. your Stoic philosophers would yeah. be on board. People who, you know, are worshiping the Greek pantheon in the temple they might think like, wait, hang on a second. I don't believe that. But so he's engaging sort of in this realm of ideas that is already a conversation going on internal to Greek religious and philosophical thought. He's kind of staking some claims. Is that how you read that? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and it's interesting because that, of course, is a a debate happening in the Jewish community too with the, you know, with what is the role of the temple and how do we think about the temple? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the sacrificial system like that that is 
I just keep thinking back to your point a couple of weeks ago, Bobby, what it is to have Paul as a diaspora Jew, yeah, as the one bearing this message into the Gentile world, and that I don't know his his sort of dual identity as as Jewish and as you know Roman citizen feels more and more important every week that we read together. I think that's right, and he seems here to have developed some sophistication about how to navigate those worlds that I kind of are a little surprising to me. Like he really is coming out with very much engaged. Now we talked a little bit about how in God, we live and move and have our being comes from Greek poetry. And then in verse 28, he also quotes the stoic poet Aratus. this line, we are his Mm -hmm. offspring. Yep. Most scholars think he's actually quoting Aratus's phenomena, which I, you know, I'm not a classicist. And so I had not heard of the phenomena, but According to Carl Holliday, whose commentary I use sometimes, he said it's like the th- he ranks it as number three on the you know the Amazon bestsellers list of ancient yeah. Greece or whatever, like yeah. the Iliad, the Odyssey, and then the Phenomena. And so he's so Paul has taken something that's in the in the culture, and he has used it as a way of referring to this to this belief system that he has. Brilliant, brilliant. Yes, a- and to just to add to that. This, that same quote is also quoted by a second century, 100 years later, BCE Jewish writer named Aristobulus. Oh, Aristobulus is how I would say that, being a hayseed. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like it. I like it. I like it. Yeah. So he he really is is finding these ideas that are, that exist in both. Yeah. In both Greek and. I love it. I love it. Here's the way we are connected, y'all. Yeah. Okay, things take a little bit of a turn. <laughs> I'll be interested in what, you th- what you think about how, because right now we're sort of creating common ground and saying we yes. all, like, there's a lot we can agree on, y'all. Yes. Verse yes. 29. Mm-hmm. Therefore, as God's offspring, we have no need to imagine that the divine being is like a gold, silver, or stone image made by human skill and thought. God overlooks ignorance of these things in times past, but now directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and lives. This is because God has set a day when he intends to judge the world justly by a man he has appointed. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, I read this in the sort of interfaith model as the shift from here's how far we can go together to like, now here's the part I believe that Mm -hmm. distinguishes me from you. Is that how you read that? Yeah. Yes, I think so. You know, I keep... It's been interesting to sort of, re, I don't know, to admire what Paul is doing so far and to sort of understand what his mission is in going to this community. And again, like try to take him seriously in his faith that he genuinely believes like you folks are going to suffer terribly if you don't convert. Yeah. And it, that's a really, that's a harsh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a harsh turn. I mean, I, you know, my first thought is, is experiencing folks like out in the real world, evangelical Christians who are trying to convert Jews, you know, that that sort of like fear, uh, it's experiences like a fear tactic, like, oh yeah, we're great friends here, but actually you're gonna suffer terribly if you don't do what I told you. So like, there's like yeah. a, a sense of like a power shift sort of, instead yeah. of an exchange of ideas, like, but it might be that that's just unavoidable in this kind of interfaith conversation because 
Because if that is truly what Paul believes, he can't not tell them that. Yeah. I don't know. But, and then I was trying to think of like parallel things that are totally outside the world of religion, like the environmental crisis. Like, do we not tell people what's happening because it will scare them and they'll feel manipulated and feel like it's fear tactics and whatever. But if we genuinely believe it's true, you know, is there, is there an obligation to say what is true, even though it will create a fear response or some kind of life pushback against a fear response? Yeah. That was just a jumble of thoughts that I just, <laughs> no, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I was trying to think in that like environmental crisis model of, you know, you can establish lots of common ground about yeah. we all love the earth. We think mountains and oceans and rivers are beautiful. We all care about the future and our children and we want them to have a wonderful place to live. That's how far we can go together. And now, you know, if I'm a climate scientist, I'm going to say, but look, y'all, if you really care about this. Yeah. And, you know, if you never say that part, I think that's exactly right. If you never say that part, like that's the most important part right. in the current moment. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful, Amy. And for Paul, this is the most important part. Like there's a lot I Paul can respect about you know, the Greek belief system, both religious and philosophical. But the thing that matters to Paul is there is a judgment that is coming. It is coming through Jesus. And that's going to matter for you, you know. Yeah. So I don't quite know what to do with that, um, but I, but I think it's exactly right. And like I respect Paul here because he has gone as far as he can go, and he's built common ground. And then he's just said, "And look, here's what I believe that's different than what you believe." And he's not afraid of upsetting people. Mm-hmm. He's just saying what he believes to be true. Can I ask a remedial question? Sure, you can. <laughs> Pretty remedial. Okay. So where did we get the part about the the day when the world is going to be judged? Like that, if that was in the gospel, it wasn't like front loaded. Yeah, it's interesting, Amy, because we're reading Acts as a follow up to the gospel of John, when in fact Acts is a follow up to the gospel of Luke. And so John, we talked about all the way through, like at various points along the way, having a realized eschatology which basically means that once Jesus shows up, the, the end time, the kingdom has been initiated and it's going to come into fulfillment. The synoptic gospels have a, like a future eschatology, which is more familiar in most Jewish apocalyptic traditions, that there is going to be this sort of cataclysmic mm-hmm. end to history where God's going to come crashing back in and separate out the righteous from the wicked. Mm-hmm. And, Luke Acts leans more in that direction mm-hmm. than the Gospel of John did. That does seem like that would press pretty hard against those like Epicurean and Stoic yeah. worldviews. It's interesting because Paul, up until right then, has everything he has said has pretty much been agreeable to somebody else. Yes. So when he says, we don't need to worship God, you know, in temples with gold, silver, stone, like Epicureans and Stokes would have said, we say, That's right, right on. Mm-hmm. When we say we live and move and exist in God, like right on. When, even when you say, not resurrection of the dead, but when you talk about a life after death, Epicureans didn't really believe in a life after death, but Stoics 
by and large, had a belief in the immortality of the soul. They would not have believed in resurrection, which we'll talk about in a minute. But they, they're they not immediately opposed to the idea that humans live on after they die. So everything, mm-hmm. there's two things that Paul has really said here. One is judgment. And the judgment is going to become by somebody who was resurrected from the dead. So the difference between, you know, somebody who's immortal soul lives on past death and someone who in fact died and was bodily resurrected. Mm-hmm. Those two things are w- really what is is separating Paul. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, both of those two things are comfortable in certain forms of Jewish belief in the in this time period, mm-hmm. which had an apocalyptic belief, you know, that God is coming crashing in, there's going to be a judgment of the living and the dead, there's going to be a general resurrection. So from a Jewish perspective, it's the singularity of Jesus there, or at least from an ancient Jewish perspective. Yep, yep, yep. From, from the Greek perspective, it's this idea of judgment. So he's gone pretty far, but then he's given them these two like scandalous things, judgment and resurrection from the dead. I just think it's fascinating to look overall at, at how Paul moves through this encounter with them. Yeah. And so, yeah, he, he has to... He has to end with that stuff or he has to get that stuff in there. There's no way that he can really, you know, sugarcoat that to make it go down easily with the philosophies that he thinks are are present in the community already. So he yeah. just just puts them out there. Now the transition to me comes in verse 30. In the CEB, God overlooks ignorance of these things in time past. Mm-hmm. Well, how does the NRSV translate that? While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he yeah. commands all people. Yeah. So the difference that I'm noticing there is just the verb tense, overlooks versus mm-hmm. overlooked. That seems important. Can you talk a little bit about in what way it seems important? Well, it seems like what he's saying is like, look, we have all these common, you know, all these things in common, and we do have this thing that is a difference. Up to now, God has overlooked that difference. And so yeah. that's why there haven't been any consequences for this before. Yeah. But the, but but times, but something different has happened. Yeah. You know, Jesus has come and something even more different is about to happen. Like we're, something has changed. And so for me, having yeah. a verb shift in tense there would help demarcate yeah. what was true and what is now true. In Greek, it's an aorist participle, which suggests like completed action, but it's sort of in the present moment. Uh-huh. So the way, so I think the like way that I'm- has been overlooking? Yeah. Or something? Like the way that I read it is God continues even now to mm. overlook your past ignorance. Mm. Mm. So it's not that God now today now suddenly cares oh that God, you were Greek ignorant yesterday. Greek is so crazy. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love Hebrew because it's just like, here's ancient Hebrew especially. Like, let me just sort of paint you like a- I'm going to like approximate. Right. And this is either something <laughs> yeah. finished or not finished. Yeah. You That's can sort it. of make your way. Yeah. Right. So the, to me, the, the, the juxtaposition or the interplay between NRSV and CEB is really interesting. Because like what I think the Greek is after is God continues even today to- ignore your, overlook your ignorance from yesterday. So it's not that now God cares that you were ignorant yesterday. God doesn't, still doesn't care that you're ignorant mm. yesterday. But God cares that you're, if you're ignorant now. And so like yeah. from here on, what you do matters. From here past, what you do 
whatever it was, that's fine. Yeah. So this is the moment where that changes. And that sort of, I don't know whether that's better to say overlooks or overlooked, mm-hmm. but that's, I think, what, what he's after. The, by the way, Carl Holiday translates that as innocence. Like, mm. it's like age of innocence. Like, previous unto now, ignorant has like a pejorative sense to it. Like, you were kind of dumb. Innocence as holiday translates, it just has the sense of like, you didn't know. Right. Which is also what ignorance means, but right. Ignorance just sounds like you don't want to yeah, be it just ignorant. sounds worse, but I think that's part of, that's part of what's, I don't know if this is what Paul is getting at, but it sort of is like, now that I have told you, you're yes. going to be expected to do something with this information. You didn't know before. Yeah. And so you wouldn't have, you know, like you, you can only work with the information you have, but now you have this information. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't unhear it. That's an interesting question. This came up in the Bible Room Collaborative, actually. And people were talking about, like, if Paul just hadn't said anything right here, like, could they have continued on in their innocence and ignorance and it would have been fine? And I think that's an interesting question. Like, the way that I read what Paul is saying here is things have changed, and I am telling you that they have changed. It is not me telling you that it's changed that changes anything. Mm. Like, Mm -hmm. from from the death and resurrection of Jesus onward, the judgment is coming, whether or not you ever hear that. And now I'm telling you, that's the way I read him right here. But it is an interesting question of like, maybe Paul just shouldn't have said anything. And then everybody could have continued on blissfully. And then the times of human ignorance would have been sort of much more broadly construed. So that was before Jesus came and saw anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And now humans are responsible for disseminating the information. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And so then the spreading of the gospel becomes something like things have changed, y'all. And we need mm-hmm. to tell as many people as we can that things have changed because the, yeah. the judgment is coming. So then the part we're adding to the narrative lectionary at the behest of the Bible Room Collaborative is the response, which I think is actually a really important part of this text. So picking up in 32, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to ridicule Paul. However, others said, we'll hear from you about this again. At that, Paul left the council. Some people joined him and came to believe, including Dionysus, a member of the council on Mars Hill, a woman named Damaris, and several others. Hmm. That just, I thought we were building to something more dramatic than that. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I did too, and I kind of love it. I kind of love it. That like, Paul said his thing. People responded as they responded. Range of responses. And then Paul left. And people came if they wanted to. Like, he wasn't going to, he didn't, like, there wasn't any following debate. There was, no like, no one abused anyone uh, on either side. You know, like, they just, I don't know, people believed it or they didn't. Yeah. I I don't know. I I, kind of like that. What do you, what do you think? No, I really like it too. Like, I'm kind of glad that it, like in that sense of like, Paul has exactly right. He has made his claim. He has stated his truth. He has allowed people to respond to it, how they respond to it. He doesn't berate anyone and they don't berate him, right? They don't throw him in jail or they don't do anything to him. I, like, to me, that's a beautiful conclusion. It's, 
Like I, I thought we were going to head towards something like, and then 5,000 people were baptized. You know, like right. you kind of expect something like that. Mm-hmm. Or some dramatically bad thing to happen. Oh, yeah. Like he was caned and thrown in jail. Right. Yeah. And everybody kind of says, okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting to think about, to like try on the idea, I guess, of, of, of being in a, a group or a culture where it's normal to just try on new ideas. Yeah. You know, like, tell us your idea and we'll do what we do with it. And it doesn't mean you accept every idea. It doesn't mean you reject every idea. You just consider yeah. it. But they're not afraid of the power of the idea. Like, they don't they don't feel yeah. compelled to respond in a big way to it if they don't believe it. If they do believe it, then they're going to, you know, change their lives accordingly. But if they don't believe it, then, like, no harm, no foul. Yeah. I actually love the way this happens on along those lines because you know there's the one group who's like that's ridiculous and there's the other group who's like let's be followers and but then there's this sort of third group that's like we want to hear more about that but not today. Mm, <laughs> and I kind of yeah. like that that's there and then it's because it doesn't make a binary of some yeah. you either believe or you don't. It's like some people just need they need to hear it more than once. Right. No, I love that. The people were like, "Huh." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I'd probably be in the middle camp on many ideas. Yeah, think some more about me that. <laughs> me too. And it seems like it's an okay way to be. Yeah. The other thing that I think is important here is, you know, in some versions of Christianity, like you kind of judge your success by how many people you can convert to Christianity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here that's not how Paul, I mean, I, there is no judgment here, good or bad about what Paul has done, but it, it seems like Paul's thing is, I said what I believe to be true. Yeah. And only a couple people seem to have really bought fully into it. And like, that's fine. Like, this is not like a failed effort because only a few people bought into it. It's like, there it is. Like, those are the people who came along. And that's, that's, that's the way it should be. The people who needed to hear it, heard it. And the other people responded the way they did. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. No, I like that too. We don't know anything, by the way, about Dionysus or Damaris elsewhere from the biblical text. We do get a tradition in the Christian historian Eusebius that says Paul later appointed Dionysus as the first bishop of Athens. So the tradition remembers him as being an important person. Historically, whether that's true or not, we don't, we don't really know. And then I love that it, the other one, like there's Dionysus, this guy, and Damaris, who's explicitly named as a woman here. Like those are the two converts. Yeah, I just, I, I like that. Yeah. The thing that causes scandal here is the resurrection of the dead. It's pretty shocking. I mean, can you say more? <laughs> can you say more about that? That's just a really big claim. Like, that's not yeah. just think about this idea and think about this framework for the world. And does this, you know, these things that I would consider more more philosophical? I guess that's making an actual claim. Yeah, that something quite literally happened recently that breaks all the laws of science as they know it, all the law, like everything they've thought about what is possible in the world. And he is saying this happened. Like it's not a metaphor. It's not an idea. It actually happened. Yeah. That's just really, it's a little hard for me to imagine that anyone just hearing this from Paul would be like, oh, okay, I believe you. I mean, I guess a couple people do, but that I, I don't know how someone convinces someone of that, like, yeah. moment in history, like that kind of yeah. 
physical reality thing when it seems so counter to yeah to anything they've experienced or heard about. I think that's exactly right. Anything. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting to me is that some of the people in this crowd, as I was saying earlier, would have believed in the immortality of the soul. So this idea that something about us continues on mm-hmm. after we die and that it's this sort of like soul essence or some sort of spiritual is not exactly what I mean, but I don't have a better word for it right now. Some sort of spiritual reality that's disconnected from the body is going to continue on. Like that would have been okay in a Greek framework for, for many people. Yeah. The resurrection of the dead adds a whole other layer to it. And, you know, the word that's used there of the dead is necros, which can just mean a corpse or like a dead body. And so I think it's the physicality of the thing that is a scandal for some people. So not that there is life after death, like we're okay with that, but that there is like bodily life or like corpses can become part of the world to come or whatever. And that scandalizes people. I think it scandalizes people still today. Like if if you ask people, many Christians I know, if you ask them, do you believe in resurrection? They'll say, yes, but they, but if you really press them on it, what they believe in is like an immortality of the soul. Yeah. And if you say, do you believe in resurrection of the body? Then that like, then there's a whole different conversation, which is kind of interesting to me. Yeah. To me, it's important because to say, like, if you say that there is a spiritual resurrection that is not bodily, then you are walking really, really close to separating out the essence of material world from the essence of the spiritual world. You then use like the next step beyond that is to say the material world doesn't matter. Things about this life don't matter. Like it's all about spiritual life. And you know me well enough, and I know you well enough to think you probably agree with me. That when, once you've lost the materiality of the thing, like you have lost something really important about like what happens in this world to these bodies matters. And that can be redeemed on the other side of death is the claim that Christianity is making and that the resurrection of the body is making. So that what happens now, the material world now matters. To me, that's a crucial, like I don't quite, resurrection of the body is sort of an abstract concept, but the, the notion that the redemption of the material world is important seems really crucial to me. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what seems to scandalize these Athenian listeners. Yeah. Yeah. That that feels like the big that's that's the big difference, right? Like that's the big the big divide dividing point. Yeah. That, that, yeah. I don't know. That's that's hard. That's a hard hard thing to get someone to believe. All right, Amy, well, this is kind of an interesting text, different than some of the other texts that we have been reading. I'm curious, as you think about this text and where it might connect to contemporary life, what are you thinking about? I am thinking, I'm thinking about, you know, this idea of interfaith dialogue, which is, this is not really because the other people don't say anything. That's true. But it's it, interfaith monologue. It's <laughs> interfaith monologue. Yeah. Right. But Paul is trying to take into account what he thinks he knows about the people. And it seems, as far as we can tell, like what he thinks he knows about them is accurate enough. Yeah. But I think what's even more interesting to me is sort of thinking in modern times about the conversations that we do and don't have with each other, some of which relate yeah. to religious faith but, faith, but some of which relate to environmental crises or other dangers that that people face in our world that are yeah. that are real and pressing 
I'm thinking about what holds us back from just saying what we think is true the way that Paul does. He just says what he thinks is true. The people do what they do with it. And then he goes on to his... (laughs) He goes on to his next place. And it kind of makes it seem so simple in a way. Yeah. But it's not simple. It's not simple. I don't experience it as simple at all, as simple at all. And I don't know if it's because once I have spoken my truth, I feel responsible for changing the other person's mind. Like it's not just I have to say what I think, but I have to, you know, have that kind of impact that you can point to. Or mm-hmm. if it's, you know, fear of embarrassment that they will scoff at me, which some of the, these folks do scoff at Paul, and he just doesn't really seem to be affected by that. I don't have a great answer to that question, but it really is sort of planted in my mind after reading this text. Why don't we have more conversations like this? Paul makes it look easy. No, I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that I, I mean, we've been talking about this along the way, but one of the things that I really appreciate about this text is that it is a moment in which Paul is sort of modeling a way of entering into a dialogue that takes seriously the, like he has clearly understood something about Greek and Athenian culture. He has taken the time to observe, even if it upset him internally, Mm-hmm. to observe what he saw around Athens. Mm-hmm. When he frames it for them, he does not frame it mm-hmm. in a way that I'm upset with you. He frames it in a way of saying, there's a lot of things that you already believe that I really respect. He connects with things in their in their own religion and their own poetry, their own philosophy. And he says, these are things that I, that I recognize and that I value and that I think are important. And... There is that just basic acknowledgement of another person's, the value of another person's culture that comes through in this text that to me is crucially important in the ways that we've been talking about Mm -hmm. and is something that I feel like has been lost. I mean, it's been lost religiously. It's been lost culturally. Mm -hmm. It's been lost like even in the last couple of years with everything that's been happening in the U.S. around elections and it's just a breakdown of, of the ability to have real conversation with people that have mm-hmm. really different views. To start out by saying, authentically saying, mm-hmm. I've been looking around and I see that you are a very pious religious person. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't read that as snarky, which I don't when Paul says it, like, even something as simple as that seems really difficult in our contemporary world to yeah. say, this thing that you're doing that I that I don't do, I still... I see what you're about there, and I value that. Right, right. I see some essential part of you that's really, really, that I really admire. Yeah. One of the things that that makes me think about is that Paul, whether we get it narrated here or not, he has taken the time. I mean, the theological way of talking about it is he's taken the time to become incarnated among the Athenians. Like, he's Mm. been out on the street. He's walked around. He's, you know, read their poetry. He's seen their religious sites. He has taken the time to understand something about them. Before he's tried to talk to them and say like, boom, here's, here's what I want to tell yeah, you. Yeah. And I think that is an important lesson religiously, yes. but also in other kinds of ways. is like being yes. bodily present among people with whom you wish to be in dialogue who may have very different views from you. Like that's the first step is the bodily presence and trying to appreciate things um, uh, that 
that other people, other cultures, other belief systems have to have to offer. Yeah. Which is sort of the flip side of the like speak your truth, which you were talking about is, you know, also take the time to appreciate. Yeah. The last thing that I really love in this text is that the result is so small. <laughs> like I really like, I take so much comfort in that. Like you get two people out of this whole big speech at the center of Athens. Right. There, you right. know, only two named people like really buy anything Paul had said. And like, that seems to be fine. And I feel like that takes a lot of pressure off, you know, just to be like, the thing is to be present with people and to speak what is true. And then the outcome is not the point. Like to me, that's such a hard lesson. The outcome yeah. is not the point. It's, yeah. the, it's the producing. It's the naming. It's the dialoguing. That's what matters. The speaking of truth. That's what matters, even if no one is ultimately convinced. Yeah. You know, that was another, um, of course, when, when John Levinson talks about interfaith dialogue, he's not talking about evangelism, which is a really, and he makes yeah. that point very explicitly that he is, is, ta- is speaking about conversations that are happening when you are not trying to persuade the other person to change anything. And no one expects yeah. that anyone's going to change anything. We're just trying to understand each other. But I feel like to the extent that um, an evangelical moment can, can get close to that, this does, because it really is sort of like Paul is compelled to say, to speak his truth, and then what happens, happens. And, yeah. and I think that's, I think that's lovely. All right, Amy, well, next time we'll be in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. All righty. I'll be here. All right. See you then. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll begin our discussion of Paul's letter to the Philippians, starting with chapter 1, verses 1 to 18a. Until then, keep on digging.